The year is 993 of the Common Era. London was at the forefront of a war. This war is led by a king, Ethelred, a young man of questionable passions, a kind of king willing to destroy whole towns of his loyal subjects if they annoyed him. Yet of late, the young king had finally seemed to get his act together. The growing crisis caused by the increasing number of Viking raids had seemingly sharpened his focus. He had managed to secure a diplomatic victory in the ongoing campaign. He had pressured the Pope to secure a peace deal with the Duchy of Normandy, which meant Normandy would now close their ports to the Vikings, making it harder for them to operate. It wasn't much, but it was something. Soon after this diplomatic victory, however, a huge fleet led by a Viking called Olaf Tryggvason had rampaged along the English east coast. This had culminated at a place called Malden, where the army of Essex had been annihilated and the southeast coast was left exposed. In the face of this, the new Archbishop of Canterbury had advised the English pay a Danegeld to buy some time. Not much time just enough to put a plan into motion. A great fleet was summoned to London. The ships of England galvanised for war, led by the Erdemann of Northumbria, the Bishop of Dorchester and the Bishop of London. London had finally gained the naval focus campaign it appears they had wished for for years. The fleet had been sent out on a hunting expedition. Their remit? find and locate and destroy Viking raiding fleets. But amidst this force, the king's favourite and the most powerful noble in the land, Ildemann Elfric of Hampshire, had decided he didn't think England could win this. So he had fled and took ships with him, therefore crippling the operation. The resulting naval campaign was at best a score draw and was probably seen as a failure, and the survivors of the English fleet returned home, feeling betrayed and angry. As the cold sun bore down on the start of the year 994, London gave thanks to God for having made it through the year that had just gone, and offered prayers for deliverance from any evil that lay ahead of them. And they were going to need all the prayers they could get. Hi, my name is Saul. And welcome to chapter 24 in the story of London. The Battle of London. It's easy to imagine that the nation of England at this point seemed determined to confound and frustrate the residents of London. One can only imagine the reaction as the news arrived that Elfric would be unpunished for having gone missing with his ships the year before. A great Witan was held, the good and the great of England attended, and Elfric, the Elderman of Hampshire, remained in position as the Elderman of Hampshire. Now, while removing an elderman was a staggeringly rare event, and historians of the Anglo-Saxon age would no doubt reassure us that such things should not be expected, we can only imagine that the residents of London would have been seething in bitterness at this news. Their ships had put to sea led by their bishop. They'd allowed this 
Eerdemann advised them to not attack a prone Viking fleet because it was late in the day. They could have attacked. They should have attacked. They would have taken them by surprise. The Vikings would not have been able to flee, but no. That damn Eelfric had said it was too late in the day and they should rest, which gave him and his men a chance to escape during the night. And then someone had tipped off the Vikings, or maybe the Vikings had just seen Elfric's ship sail past them. Whatever had happened, whatever the cause or excuse he gave, whatever the official explanation of the debacle, I can only think that the men of London were furious. And then to hear that Elfric was not punished for this in any way? Ah! Well, maybe he was not punished directly. We know that his eldest son was arrested on some unknown crime and was sentenced to be blinded. Blinding in this era was, well, as brutal as it sounds, and if not worse, and most men died from this process. Turns out Elfric's eldest son died from being blinded. Maybe, maybe this placated the Londoners a little. Still, the Witan had caused some changes, but fundamentally the changes were that the cronies who surrounded the king were basically kicked out of office and the old guard and their allies who had surrounded the king when he was young regained their positions of power. I mean, yeah, sure, these guys were only marginally less corrupt than the new guard, but at least they knew how to run things. Regardless of how they felt, the inhabitants of London were simply the residents of a growing market town and trade port. Not for them to decide the affairs of the great and the good. 994 saw London put its head down and carry on with life. It got on with the business of trading and making money. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Well, it turns out that the worst that can happen had already happened hundreds of miles away. Olaf Tryggvason, that Norwegian adventurer who had raided England and gained the victory at the Battle of Malden, he was now armed with a veritable fortune in silver. Turns out he had not sailed back to where the Scandinavian sources said he'd been based previously, the Irish Sea, but had travelled to where he could spend his fortune properly, Denmark. And news of his victory would have gained the attention of the new king of Denmark, the pagan, Svein Forkbeard. Svein would have had reason to be nervous of Olaf Tryggvason. Firstly, Tryggvason was openly Christian, and what was worse, Tryggvason was successful and rich. He was displaying the characteristics of a brilliant and daring Viking warlord. This immediately made him a champion for the Christian Scandinavians. Svein Forkbeard would have viewed Olaf immediately with trepidation and caution. But the thing is, Svein would have wanted to know more about Olaf's raid. And he would have wanted to know more about what Olaf had discovered in England. See, Olaf's raid was more than just a raid. It was a massively successful operation that had led to face-to-face -face negotiations with England's leading cleric, which then led to this nation bringing Olaf a fortune. I cannot help but feel that Olaf would have explained how disorganised England was where barely anyone seemed to put up a fight. 
where when they did, they weren't very good at it. Where towns fell like trees in the forest to a stout woodman's axe. Where amazing fortunes could seemingly be raised out of thin air. And above all, Olaf may have spoken about the plumpest prize of them all. The newly re-emergent entropot of the south. The ancient port of London. The town with a bevy of moneyers residing in it, producing all this silver and all these coins. Sveen Forkbeard, I cannot help but think, would have listened and would have been thinking. How much better if he were to prevent Olaf claiming all the glory by going on a raid? And how much better would it be if he, King Sven Forkbeard, was the man who took this most plum prize of all. Sometime over the winter of 993 and the spring of 994, King Sven Forkbeard of Denmark began preparations for something exceptional. This was to be a Viking raid like no other. This was to be a Viking raid organized by a Viking king, no less. He would include Olaf Tryggvason and his men within the fleet. How better to eclipse his rival than by showing the power of a Viking king. Days, then weeks, and then months passed as Sven Forkbeard gathered up simply the largest Viking raiding force seen in at least a century, maybe the largest ever. In the end, it had supposedly 94 ships and probably had thousands of men in it, and I've seen estimates running from at least two and a half thousand to as many as six and a half thousand. We can estimate that he and this vast armada left Danish waters in late summer. It had taken months to organize, and Sveen wanted a good sailing to keep his vast fleet intact. There would be no preamble. There would be no warning. He and his fleet would sail straight across the North Sea, until they came to the mouth of the Thames. They would ignore the Medway River, and with it the town of Rochester. They would ignore everything. Sveen and Olaf sailed straight up the River Thames, aiming for their target. London was in the crosshairs of the largest Viking force seen in Britain in over a hundred years, and suddenly found itself staring into the maw of a gaping beast. No warning. No threats. London was facing a full-blown surprise Viking raid, and it was happening now. What would the Viking warriors of Sven Forkbeard have found waiting for them? We know the population of the town had grown, and while it was not huge, there were more men, women and children behind its walls than had ever been before. We know that the walls and gates had been rebuilt in Alfred's time, and they had last been manned in battle during the attacks by Heerstam. We also know that London had constructed a new deep ditch before the walls recently, possibly only a year before. And it's a fair assumption that if the Londoners had taken that much trouble to dig a ditch around the town, that they would have included the parts leading to the gate. After all, it's a bit dim to dig a defensive ditch, but leave intact 
the land that led to your weakest spot in the wall, isn't it? Which means they would have needed a wooden bridge from the gate to the other side of the ditch. It doesn't have to be something as elaborate as a medieval drawbridge now. Just a wooden bridge, something that at the first sight of an enemy, a bunch of lads with an axe could smash up or burn, you know. But there is another factor that should be considered, and another question we need to ask. Was there a bridge across the Thames? Had London Bridge been constructed? As I covered back in great detail in chapter 17, we know for a fact that London Bridge does exist in the year 1012. So 18 years from now, we know it will be there. Now, historical consensus would have it that the bridge was built sometime in the 10th century. So here we are in 994, with only six years before the start of the 11th century. And we should expect it to be in place. At the very least, if the full bridge wasn't in place yet, there was enough work had been done on it to make it functional and a working defensive position when Sven Forkbeard's giant fleet turns up in 994. And how can I justify saying this? Simple. In the account of what follows, we do not read any claims that this army the Vikings could or even try to do what the force led by Hasten had done a century earlier. Sven's ships never sailed down the Thames. Understand, if there wasn't a bridge, there was literally nothing supposedly stopping this Viking fleet from attacking the London docks, nothing stopping them from engaging any London-based ships, nothing to impede them from falling on the monastery of Thorny Island, our Westminster Abbey, nothing at all blocking this vast armada from devastating all the way down river to Oxford. Nothing at all. Unless there was a great big bridge in their way. As I described all the way back in chapter 6, all Anglo-Saxon bridges were at heart anti-Viking speed bumps. London Bridge would have blocked the Thames to the Vikings. In fact, given that we know at this date Southwark is a burr, even if it's only a basic one, but the idea of having two burrs either side of a river with a bridge in between them, this is basic anti-Viking defensive works 101. This is ideal. When Vikings had tried to take Paris decades before, two defensive works linked by a bridge had been what had devastated them. When the Vikings here had set up a new settlement in Hartford, Alfred had overseen the construction of two burrs with a bridge in between them on the River Lee and that blockaded them in. Such a defensive work would literally remove strategic mobility from this vast fleet. 94 ships is impressive, but if they can't sail down the river, then it's just a great big wooden traffic jam. And for me, here in 994, I believe London had the bridge, a wooden construction, standing above the water, ready to drop all manner of burning things down on any boat who tried to sail under it. So as a great fleet of Svin Forkbeard and Olaf Tryggvason took the final bend in the river and came upon London, what would they have seen? Firstly, a bridge, strong across the river. Whatever happens now, they would have to disembark. Their sailing stops here and now. Now they could have offloaded their men on the south bank, but that would have been a pointless exercise. The land was marshy and boggy, and yes, while the south side only had a small but stoutly defended burr around a hamlet, 
The danger there lay in the fact that the defenders only had to cover a small area to defend, and it could be reinforced endlessly via the bridge. If the language of war was a sentence, then Southwark would have been a particularly brutal full stop. And to the right of this, a burr like no other. London. Thick, gigantic walls, built not by these people, not by the English, but by the Romans. They were ancient, solid and tough. The strong walls would have towered over the attackers and they would have been bristling with defenders. Its gates were tough and fierce looking. And around these walls, a new defensive ditch, which may have been filled with water, but whose every inch was under easy sight of the men on the walls. It would have been ferocious looking. This was going to be a tough nut to crack. So even if Sven Forkbeard had turned up with this gigantic raiding force, even if he had thousands of men at his disposal, there is the hint here he'd not properly planned this raid. I don't think, based on the numbers he brought, Sven underestimated how tough London would be. I just don't think he ever appreciated that old maxim of war, the one that says, a wolf knows many tricks, but a hedgehog only knows the one trick. It just happens to do it bloody well. Still, the Danish king would have had quite a bit to think about as his forces came upon London. Even with only a short warning, there was enough men to defend it, and we know this town was used to a constant state of being alerted and arming themselves quickly due to the basic mechanisms of its peace guild. And with a bridge in place, this created a bottleneck. The ships would have been packed as they filled the riverway. 94 dragon ships is going to take up a lot of space. Such a force would have probably have alighted in the region we today call Shadwell and Wapping to the east of London. And they would immediately have seen their first problem. If they landed there, then directly facing them would have been a solid wall. The first gate was only reached after walking around the town for some distance, Allgate which comes along before Bishopsgate and Moorgate. Still, this would have given Sven enough space to offload and organise his men. But understand something. This is not an army of conquest. It is a Viking raid. King Sven Forkbeard did not take any siege engines with him. This was an infantry force only, only given any mobility because of the ships. London would have appeared as this brutal block on their progress. He wasn't here for the siege, he was here for the raid. And they had to take it, and take it fast. And London? We do not read of any noble leading the defence of the city. So unless their bishop was there, and he may well have been, and don't forget this bishop of London, we know had led Londoners into battle before. This was going to be mostly a defence of London by Londoners themselves. Those men on the walls and on the bridge were the feared of London. It was its merchants and its craftsmen, its labourers and sailors and carpenters and butchers and clerks and stevedores and farmers, the London sin themselves, facing the most ferocious force of Vikings seen in generations. The date was September the 8th, the year 994, and the first true Battle of London began.
Unfortunately, our only account of this battle is tantalizingly brief, but it is packed with details. So the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says the following, quote, This year came Anlaf and Sven to London on the nativity of St. Mary with four and ninety ships, and they closely besieged the city and would fain have set it on fire, but they sustained more harm and evil than they ever supposed that any citizens could inflict on them. The Holy Mother of God on that day in her mercy considered the citizens and ridded them of their enemies." Unquote. So yeah, spoiler alert, London wins. <laughs> but I look at that description and I see we get a hint of how they won. The opening descriptor says, quote, they closely besieged the city, unquote, which suggests the Vikings got right up to the walls and gates. In other words, Svein Fortbeard ordered an attack straight up. And they sound like they went after the weak points, which would have been either A, the gates, or B, the bridge. Remember, if there was a bridge, and if the Vikings took it out, they could use their fleet to expand their operations. And in the same sentence, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles said the Vikings, quote, would fain have set it on fire, unquote. And that phrase stands out to me. They wanted to burn the place. For me, the would fain have wanted to set it on fire suggests that their offensive should have been focused on the river as much as the land. I mean, let's face it, it's easier to set fire to a wooden bridge than to a stone wall, after all. And also consider what the Vikings' options to attack would have been. I mean, you have these tall stone walls, covered in the enemy, and before them, a new defensive ditch that may or may not be filled with water. You try and use scaling ladders, even if you brought scaling ladders, these would have been easily rebuffed. This meant your options were to surge for the gates, which while not as elaborate as later medieval barbicans and so forth, would still have been the weakest parts of the wall, so therefore would have had countermeasures included, or you try and take out the bridge somehow. So would Fain have set it on fire? For me, basically means we have only three options to explain that. Vikings without catapults were trying to throw flaming sticks over the giant walls. Hmm. Vikings trying to burn Allgate to help break it down, possibly. Or Vikings trying to set fire to the bridge to remove the impediment before the fleet. In truth, we do not know. But we can begin to visualise Fien's attack. And we know that he did attack, and he did throw men into it, quote, but they sustained more harm and evil than they ever supposed that any citizens could inflict upon them, unquote. It sounds like London is butchering them. Remember, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is talking about a Viking force here, the evil pagans. The Vikings are evil, and for them to be on the receiving end of, quote, harm and evil, unquote, it just screams to me that London went literally medieval on their ass. The walls would have been next to impossible to scale, and any scaling attempt would have been easily countered. Attacks on the gates could have seen scalding fat or burning pitch dropped on the attackers, along with stones or anything heavy at hand. The Londoners were not a trained army, but the Fjord knew how to mount a shield wall, and these walls created the best of all possible shield walls. 
If the Vikings attacked the bridge, it was the same. Their boats were open to all manner of projectiles. And don't forget, either with or without the Bishop of London being there, this city was devout. Their faith was a spur to them. And I feel confident in saying this, as the next line says, quote, The Holy Mother of God on that day in her mercy considered the citizens and ridded them of their enemies. This battle simply appears to be a massive attack by Sveen and his thousands of men that was met with brutal and ferocious resistance and that this huge army of Vikings simply gave up. Which, by the way, would make sense. I mean, think about it. You turn up with a huge fleet intent on a massive smash-and-grab operation. First target turns out to be tough. Turns out to be bloody tough. You throw your men at it, and they get hurt. Men die. Men are being injured. It doesn't have to be many. It may not have been many. We have to remain skeptical even of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, but... The impression we get is that Sveen Folkbeard unleashed this huge raiding force upon the first target of his smash and grab raid, the Burr of London, and there they met their religiously devout, fierce and defiant population who were more than happy to defend their home with bloody and savage resolve. These were not timid farmers. These guys were not going to surrender without one hell of a fight. And why should Sveen fight? This was supposed to be a raid, like Olaf Tregvason's. Smash and grab and make much money. If he threw wave after wave into his attack, it would have just depleted his forces. This was making him look bad in front of his men. Sod this, the rest of the country had plenty of places that didn't have great big bloody Roman walls around them. And the rest of the country was in a bleeding death trap like London was. Sveen Falkbeard probably realised this nut was too hard to crack and ordered his men back on their ships and straight back down the Thames. And this they did, seemingly furious at what they had experienced in London. And I get this impression because the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle then says the great army of Sven Falkbeard left London and that, quote, thence they advanced and wrought the greatest evil that ever any army could do in burning and plundering and manslaughter, not only on the sea coast in Essex, but in Kent and in Sussex and in Hampshire." Unquote. England was burning. Across the south of the country, the army of Sven Forkbeard pillaged and despoiled and plundered and inflicted death and enslavement, raping and more. But London, London had stood. London had held. London had won. And while we have no account, and thus we really have no idea how the town, this emergent city, would have responded to this victory, we can imagine a few responses. I mean, maybe they fell to their knees and gave thanks to the Lord Jesus and his Holy Mother Mary for deliverance and then attended Mass in St. Paul's most devoutly and thanked St. Erkenbald for his intercession. Or 
Maybe the grim-faced fjord of London watched the Viking ships depart down the river and stoically considered the fate of the rest of the nation and, like some king of Rohan in a certain major feature film, whispered the words, Thus it begins, and maintained their combat readiness and their watch in case the Vikings returned. Or maybe, like a bunch of London football fans, they took to the streets singing and chanting, giving voice to raucous celebration, crying out in exultation, in glory, in victory. We have won! Maybe it was a mix of all three. Why shouldn't it be? But London had faced the beast, and London had held. It had shown the nation that these Vikings could be defeated. It was now up to the rest of the nation to show the same character, but alas, they did not. And Svein raided and plundered to his heart's content, his men, having somewhere along their raids, gained horses. And, well, the only thing worse than a rampaging Viking army is a rampaging Viking army on horseback. And eventually it transpired, and the London Sin would have heard about this, that the new Archbishop of Canterbury had managed to negotiate peace with King Svein. England had agreed to pay off Sven Forkbeard, a huge payday, bigger than Olaf's, £16,000, a staggering amount. And as the winter fell upon the land, the army of Sven Forkbeard settled down on English soil as King Æthelred sent word out and the money was gathered up. And the residents of London and above all its moneyers would have seen huge amounts of freshly made coin produced just for this. But, as the year ended, Æthelred, the king who had shown he actually had some decent diplomatic chops, if not military ones, pulled off an absolute flanker. He actually did something which was, you know, by all accounts at the time, pretty damn smart. You see, after his negotiations with Sven Forkbeard had finished, Æthelred began separate negotiations with Olaf Tryggvason, you know, the Viking who had won at Malden, and who was a Christian. You see, Olaf was treated like royalty, as you know, he was royalty. He had a claim to the kingdom of Norway, and basically, I think Æthelred said to him, well, why don't you go for it? The king offered Olaf Tryggvason an additional payoff, maybe £6,000, maybe more, and a treaty was signed. The king forgave and forget everything Olaf had done to England, and he said they would nominally support him in his claim for the Norwegian throne, or he hinted at it anyway, if Olaf would kind of not attack England again. And we think Olaf went for it. We think Olaf agreed that within that payoff he got, there would be funds for Viking mercenaries who would serve Æthelred. We know of a figure called Palig, who seems to be Norwegian and could have been married to Sven Forkbeard's Christian sister, and who, after this deal, was granted lands in the vulnerable South Devon coastal region. So it does look like there were mercenaries. And then the treaty said that Olaf would establish 
trade relations between his new lands in Norway and England. And I can't help but feel that, maybe, at this meeting held in Andover, that's a bone thrown to London. I mean, for Norwegian traders, the easiest ports to get to were the likes of York and Ipswich, and, of course, London. Having good trade relations with Norwegian traders, having long ships turning up and bringing profit and not armies, now that was the kind of thing London liked. In truth, this deal with Olaf Tryggvason was a masterstroke, because not only did Olaf keep his word and never attack England again, he did indeed return, and he did indeed claim the title of King of Norway, which meant that Svein Forkbeard now also had to return home and try and claim it back. With one treaty, Ethelred had shown he could utterly remove the threat of Scandinavians doing this kind of thing again. Coupled with Normandy now closing their ports to the Vikings, it looks like the young king had finally got a grip on the situation. And you can't help but feel that somewhere in all this diplomacy, someone, maybe several someones, would have realised that London had been a beacon to the nation, a shining light, an, an example for everyone. Since the start of the reign of Ethelred, England had not won a single military encounter with the new wave of Vikings. Scores of coastal towns and provinces had been ravaged. Ipswich, Southampton, Bamborough, all had fallen. The Vikings had rampaged across the north and the south, and armies had fled before them. But London had held. London had shown its character. London had shown its steel. London had triumphed. Now we sit here in the year 2023 and we now know that the reign of Ethelred the Unready is doomed because we have hindsight to allow us feel superior. But as the year 995 dawned, this was not known. The king had just pulled off his second diplomatic coup. So not only was Normandy out of the picture, no longer offering a safe haven, but he'd gotten Olaf Tryggvason to now try and go for the throne of Norway, keeping old Forkbeard occupied for a while as well. A new fleet was being constructed, the policy London had advocated was working, and the city itself had just proved to everyone that the old ferocity of Alfred's time was still to be found. No, no, in 995, everything was still to play for. England could still triumph. The fight back had just begun. And that's it for this week's chapter. Thank you for listening. And I hope you're finding it as enjoyable to hear as I find it as enjoyable to write. I'll return next week for another chapter in the story of London. The war shifts gear and England goes on the offensive. Coming soon, the wolves of London. Thanks. Bye.